This is episode 58 with National Geographic photographer, filmmaker, and writer, Amy Vitale. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. Amy Vitale got her start in journalism working as a war correspondent. As a storyteller, she's traveled to over 90 countries, lived in mud huts and war zones, contracted malaria, and even donned a panda suit, all to make a better story. On this episode, we talk about everything from what makes a good photo to how you can take better photos, how she got the wild idea of becoming a photographer, what failure taught her, getting over fear, and how she's connected with environment and wildlife, including most recently African elephants and so much more. Amy is incredibly compassionate. You can tell she gives everything to her work, which is why she frequently gets asked to give workshops and lectures all over the globe. I feel really lucky to have had this conversation with her after meeting with her for the very first time. I hope you enjoy this show. This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand who not only gets you the gear you need to get outside, but helps you get out there and explore. Anytime I've had a big adventure, whether it was volunteering in Costa Rica, even hiking in Yosemite, I've loaded up on gear at REI. I've always loved their inclusive approach and the fact the brand provides tons of education on and off the storefront floors. I've taken lots of classes at REI like orienteering, rock climbing techniques, even beginning backpacking. They also have great experiences and trips like safaris to Tanzania, trekking in the Alps, backpacking trips through the Great Smoky Mountains, and so many more. I've been a member since 1996, and I'm excited to partner with them on the show this year. You can go to REI.com to check out the latest gear, classes, experiences, to find a store near you, and to read great stories about adventure and the outdoors. All right, we have on Amy Vitale on the show. Amy, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Nice to meet you. It's great to meet you. So so I'd love for you to just kind of start with, with how you got to the wild idea to be a photographer. Sure, yeah. I never, well, first of all, I never knew that one could do this for a career. But actually, um, you know, I began really as a child. I was this incredibly gawky, awkward, shy young girl and, and even young woman. And um, something amazing happened. The second I picked up a camera, I felt like superwoman. I felt empowered to go out um, and engage with people that I was actually really afraid of. And it all of a sudden kind of gave me this reason for being there. And it just became in the beginning, this passport for, um, for getting myself out and, and exploring and meeting people. And then slowly, the more incredible thing that I started to learn was that not only did it empower me, but how powerful photography really, really can be. 
And that by telling these stories, I could amplify voices. And actually, um, you know, that word is overused, and I don't mean to make it cliche, but really, you can empower other people by telling their stories. And that was the um, where the passion came from and, and how it began. So how old were you when you first picked up a camera? Well, I was about, um, I think I was 16 when I started taking pictures. And um, yeah, and I, I lived outside of D.C. and I would just walk around and take pictures inside of Washington, D.C. and just meet all kinds of strangers. And, you know, it also just made me um, less afraid because, yeah, <laughs> that's really where it began. But then professionally, I didn't actually start working until much later. I actually did it in reverse. I became an editor before I became a photographer. So I worked at a computer at a desk for Associated Press um, in Washington, D.C. and New York. And I, I kind of learned how the news business works. And then one day I built up the courage to quit my job and pursue this dream I had to be a foreign correspondent. And so I think I was in my early 20s, like maybe 24 or 25, when I finally got the courage to quit the stability and the known for the complete unknown. And then I moved to the Czech Republic, which was a really exciting time to be there because it was shortly after the wall had come down in Berlin and everything was opening up in Eastern Europe. So that, that was my beginning. Wow. I'm always interested in people who quit a stable job for the unknown. How, how did you do that? And what sort of self-talk? Do you remember what went through your head when you decided to do it? Honestly, truth is, it's so much scarier. The things we make up in our head, it's, it's like true. we create these horror stories in our minds. And the truth is, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, I thought to myself, like, even if I fail, this world will always still be here for me. I can always come back to what I know. And, you know, I think, I think it takes, takes risk. You've got to take risks in life to, and, and also have the fear um, or sort of not let the fear of failure take over. Like it's okay if we fail, but it, you know, I would, I'd be more heartbroken not to have ever tried what was burning inside of me, like this passion to have never have tried to pursue that and just sat in my desk and my computer for stability. Um, I think I would have been much unhappier later on in life. So how did you sell your first photo? Well, you know, I, I actually got a job for this tiny little business newspaper in the Czech Republic. So I began working first for them with, I mean, they, there was very little pay, but it was just all about having the experience of being there and, um, and learning about, uh, another culture and, and life. And, um, and so that's, those were my first pictures. But then what happened is when I was working there, the war in Kosovo started happening in our backyard that was in the Balkans and not too far from where I was in Eastern Europe, former Yugoslavia. And um, I could not get these stories out of my head of children and families fleeing the conflict, literally in the clothes they wore, were wearing, and sometimes in ballet slippers. Um, mm. Friends of mine were 
had been there and were telling me and I, something inside of me knew I had to go. And so that's really, that was the biggest risk I ever took because I went overnight from being this relatively amateur photographer, not, you know, just taking pictures of businessmen and politicians to suddenly covering a conflict. And, um, yeah, those were the first pictures that I sold. But I, I also, so the conflict was kind of brewing for a long time before it hit mainstream media. So I had written all of these publications um, telling them, do you need coverage in Kosovo? And nobody even had heard of it or knew what it was. But then they had these peace talks in France, which broke down. And then uh, NATO declared that they were going to get involved. And the second that happened, all those people I had been calling for three months before then all called me up literally in the span of like two days because they had remembered me reaching out to them. So that's sort of the, you know, that's another little piece of advice for, for, for those wanting to do stories. It's like you need to kind of be ahead of the media pack a little bit on any story that you're doing because they tend to kind of travel in packs and move from one story to the next. And if you, if you can kind of get the pulse of the situation before, um, I don't mean like conflict, but with any kind of issue or just commit more time so that you have a better knowledge of it, then you'll be more valuable. It sounds like you also had to pitch. I mean, you have to put yourself out there and cold pitch people. and A lot. I mean, I know that from being a freelance journalist. Yeah. I mean, I've always been a freelancer and it's actually quite a great gift because it's given me all of these skills. So I do much better when I pitch my own stories and I've failed a lot. And, you know, one example was about, gosh, what was it? I think eight years ago, I heard about the last of four Northern white rhinos at the time, there were only eight alive and that they were being moved from a zoo in the Czech Republic in the middle of winter back to Africa in this last ditch effort to save the whole species. And I pitched it around thinking I had the most amazing story. And guess what? Every single editor rejected it. I was like, God, why? Why? And I realized something really quickly, which is, you know, you have to explain to people, well, I actually wrote them back first and said, what you know, what about this story are you not interested in? And they all came back with the same thing. They said, great story, but it's not visual. And so that's just a real, like two bits of advice I would give to people writing pitches. One, you need to visualize it. If you're planning to do a film or photos of it, you really need to explain what the visuals will be because you may know what they are, but other people have never been there and, and may not know. They just imagine that they would be these animals in crates and that you would never see them. And, um, you know, they just couldn't imagine it. So I had to, um, to visualize it. And then the other thing is just express the sense of urgency. Why now? Why does this story matter? And why now? And so those are things that I always, you know, I've gotten more, um, experience writing these pitches, but you need to be able to answer those questions. What stories and photos are you attracted to? I've read a lot about your work and I see that you've done a lot of environmental work or conservation work. And then there's, of course, there's that beautiful photo of a wedding in a war-torn country and, and your eye was attracted to the wedding, not the conflict. Can you talk about sort of 
what photos and stories you're attracted to most and why? Well, sure. I'll first start off with that, that anecdote that you're talking about. I, one of the first things I was um, sent, one of the first stories I was sent on was to go cover the second intifada in, in, uh, Israel and Palestine, and I was in Gaza, and I was asked to really just focus on the violence, and I did that, and I got very, very close to the, you know, most dramatic, sensationalistic pieces of that story, and, um, you know, I remember one day on this one square block, there was, you know, everything else was peaceful around us except for um, kids throwing rocks and the soldiers firing back bullets. And it, you know, quickly escalated into people dying and became very violent. But on one square block, there were about a dozen photographers and we were all only photographing that. And I remember walking back to my hotel and hearing music coming out of a building and I wandered in and there was this beautiful couple getting married in the middle of all of this chaos. And I just thought to myself, why aren't we also telling these stories too, the ones that allow us to relate to one another as human beings, you know, that share the same joys and desires in life. And, um, you know, I had this profound realization that I was only covering one half the story, which was, you know, at best half the story and worse, maybe even a lie, because there were all these other stories around us, stories that allow us to relate to one another as human beings, the ones that allow us to connect. And, and, you know, we share the same things on this planet. And I realized that as a journalist, I was being asked to just frankly, create more fear and polarization on this planet um, and see those people as other and somehow different than us. And the truth is, it was just a beautiful young couple wanting the same things that we all want in life. And, you know, that was when I just stopped and asked myself this question, why aren't we, why aren't we telling these stories too? And frankly, what would the world look like if we illuminated not just the things that divide us, but the things that connect us too. And so um, Israel and Palestine was this moment when I really changed trajectory of the way I tell stories. It's not that I avoid conflicts or telling the hard stories, but I think that they need to be more balanced and um, to remind us of our connections. Oh, I love that. And I'm curious to, to know, like, what's your approach to fear? Because as a, as a, journalist in war-torn countries and really scary parts of the world, you've had to probably put yourself in some hairy situations. How have you dealt with fear and what advice do you have to others to get over fear? And maybe it's, it's fear of putting your work out there as well. Yeah, there's different kinds of fear. Some are, you know, physical, some are emotional. Um, I think with conflict, I mean, how do I approach that? I mean, the first thing I do is I try to really create, I try to be smart about the situations I put myself in. And so, for example, I, I really take time to build up relationships and trust within a community that I'm working in, because that's usually when you end up getting injured or dying is when you go um, without knowing where you are without having an escape route. Mm. Um, I'm not really just talking about front lines right now. That's something different. And I don't actually cover the front line action anymore, but you still have the same dangers in any community, frankly. 
and um, or any story because if people don't know who you are and trust you, you you know, and you're in a strange, um, not a strange, but like a you know a foreign place, or even frankly, it could be in your backyard, <laughs> could be anywhere. But if people don't know who you are, um, that's where the danger comes in. So I really spend quite a bit of time building, um, you know, building trust. Um, then fear, you know, getting your work out there, fear, things that we imagine. You know, I definitely have been doing this long enough to understand that my head, like I just, I have endless chatter going on about why I'm not good enough, why I'm going to fail, you know, why other people do it better, why I shouldn't be doing it. And I just basically like (laughs) have learned to um, quiet my mind a little bit and focus on what I can do and just take baby steps. And I work really slowly. Like I, you know, I don't think I'm the most amazing photographer out there, but what I do have is a really strong work ethic and I just work really hard and it takes me longer to get, you know, the kinds of images that I'm looking for and tell a story, but I'm willing to do that. But one thing I also want to add is that I have actually failed many, many times. And so those fears came true. (laughs) It's like, oh my God, I suck. I'm not good enough. And, you know, I have, there have been several times when I have failed big and I thought like, gosh, that's the end of my career. I'm not going to, you know, um, be able to continue doing this. I mean, I failed on a Nat Geo story, believe it or not, early on in my career. And they didn't use me for a few years. And what happened is I just went back to school and learned how to make films and rebuilt myself. And I think that in every situation where I failed, it's just kind of put me on this different path and made me kind of learn something different. And so those failures are actually, it's again, really cliche, but it's so true. Those failures are when you become better and learn more. So it's not really a failure. Thank you for sharing that. Are you, are you able to talk about kind of how you, are you okay talking about what you actually did to fail? I'm curious. Yeah. So I took a story that was Um, you know, I accepted a story that I was totally not cut out for. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know the history very well. um, Or um, I didn't, it just wasn't the right story for me, but I was so excited to get the assignment that I said, yes. And I was sent out to a really remote part um, of Russia with a beautiful young woman who was my translator. And we were in a really rough place where there were a lot of, we were doing a poaching story and it was just a lot of rough men who, and no women there. And, um, I literally thought we were going to be raped the whole time. And I was, and I, and a man tried to attack me after he tried to take the translator and literally strangled me with one hand. And I just, it was a total failure. But the interesting thing is I never told anybody at Nat Geo what happened because as a woman, I was so, I just didn't want them to think that I failed because I was a woman. And um, yeah, that's the funny part about it. Now I think I would behave very differently, but um, you know, 
early on in my career, when you're young and just starting out, you just, that whole Me Too movement is bringing all of this to light. But yeah, there were plenty of experiences in my career that I just quietly, you know, came back and would just try to do the best I could, even though you're often thinking about your own physical safety. Um, Like, do you take the picture or is it my safety? So that happened a lot. Wow, Amy, it sounds like, though, it was a success because you survived. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know if it's like survival. I don't mean it like that. I just mean that, you know, that we actually all are, you know, strong and we don't need to be afraid. And it's just about trusting your intuition and knowing which situations to put. You know, I think that's, frankly, as women, I think we have a really strong sense of like a sixth sense and and trust that and it will not lead you astray well thank you and i i just read that on your instagram that you you're part of the ripple effect yeah ripple effect images it is it was started by annie griffiths who's this badass woman she is an incredible photographer worked for national geographic for so long doing incredible stories but then created this organization that is all about empowering uh women um, who are most vulnerable in, in developing countries that are being impacted by climate change so um we go out and create stories and videos and um, and uh, and photos that tell these stories and then give them away to the organizations that are helping women deal with um, climate change. So awesome. So you've been all around the world amongst, you know, people and places in the worst and best of times. I'm curious to know, you know, what have you learned that's impacted how you approach your work as well as just humanity and how you approach other humans? <laughs> other humans. Well, the same way I approach wildlife. Well, that's <laughs> you know, great. You have to, um, you know, the kindness of strangers is real. And I rely on that. Most people are lovely and kind. And there is this wonderful, magical world out there. I think we're mirrors and we reflect what we give out. But um I've said it earlier and I'll say it again. It's all about trust and earning trust is the most important. You've got to, um, you know, when people let you in, it's a really beautiful, sacred thing and you have to honor that. And truly 1% of my job is about taking photos. The rest is so much more than that. It's about getting access and, and actually understanding. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time listening and also before I even start a story, there's just tremendous amount of planning, research, um, you know, finding unique ways to tell stories. And the trick is really getting to these places that no one else has. And the secret to that is by getting to know your subject better than anyone else. And so, um, you know, just think you have to really, it's a lot more, thinking than actually clicking. Mm, I like that. And it sounds like you've had to make some sacrifices to take photos in these really remote sort of dangerous places in your career. What are some of the things that you've had to sacrifice? Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds incredibly romantic to travel the world and it is, but the reality is that you have to be emotionally self-reliant. Um, 
you know, I look back on some of those experiences and kind of wonder how I got through some of them. They were sometimes utterly terrifying and um, unimaginable. But on the other hand, the people and oh, the amazing people I've met have just, they've just changed me and showed me um, how much beauty there is out there. And, um, you know, I'll just bring up the fires in California. My, um, my family did just lose their home and my brother-in-law was crying and he's like, I'm not crying for what we lost. I'm crying for how, you know, how it showed me how beautiful people are. I mean, that how people, strangers, friends have just come together to um, support one another. And I do believe that. And I just think, especially right now, you know, given all that's happening politically and it's really easy to, to pick up a newspaper or, you know, read the news and you just feel like the world feels hopeless. And I just want to say that's not true because I'm actually getting out there, engaging in all over the place, all over the planet. And what I see is so different. I see, um, you know, I just, I see a really inspiring world that there's goodness everywhere, truly. Oh, that's so cool. I'm so sorry your family lost their home. That's devastating. We have friends in Ventura who the same. Um, thankful to all the firefighters out there as well. Amy, I know you teach classes on photography and a bunch of people ask me, you know, ask Amy, like, what's a trick that we can do even with an iPhone to taking a better photo? Oh my gosh. Any tricks and tips? No, there's no tricks. There's no tricks to photography. I mean, I know people want a quick, you know, easy trick, but the truth is, you know, it's about, it is about great light. Like you do need to get up early before the sun has even risen to get those beautiful shots or wait till the sun is setting or just after it's set to get those beautiful. So it's about, you know, really getting up at the right time of day. It's certainly about composition, but I actually think that the key to a great photograph is not just light and composition, but it needs to tell a story. It needs to have meaning. And so I see lots of these technically beautiful images. They're perfect in every way, but for me, it has to be more than just beautiful. And so I don't have like a a trick for anybody except to say, like, get to know your subject, whatever you're interested in, and spend a lot of time, like go back to the same place and look at it at different times of day and, and really just slow down mentally and spend time with one thing and, and you'll start to see more. Amy, do you have a photograph that you've taken? That's a favorite right now. I mean, when people ask me this about my podcast, it's super annoying. I'm like, I don't know. It's always the latest podcast episode I did, but I'm just curious. I'm sorry to ask you the question that I dread the most, but, but I'm so curious to know if, if there's a photo that you're really proud of. That's like asking who's your favorite child. <laughs> no. I would have one. No, I'm just kidding. So I, um, no, I'm actually really critical of my work too, because I feel like I think it's almost impossible to replicate the magic of what you're witnessing when you're there. Um, kind of the relationships, the spirit of the people I'm photographing or the animals 
it's so magical when you're there. So no, I would say I, um, my favorite pictures happens, whatever I'm working on at the moment. And right now it happens to be, I'm completely immersed in, um, some projects in Northern Kenya, um, with the communities there and their efforts to save wildlife. Can you talk a little bit about that if possible? Yeah. I mean, if you go to the last year's Nat Geo, the August issue, Mm -hmm. you'll see um, a story about the Riteti Elephant Sanctuary. And so I've been spending about the last eight or nine years in northern Kenya with these communities and knew that the sanctuary was a dream of theirs. And it's had its one year anniversary. And what makes it special is that it's totally owned and run by the indigenous community, the Samburu people. And um, it's just been really um, exciting to watch because they used to be afraid of elephants. Mm -hmm. And um, the relationship has totally changed. Basically, when an orphan, an elephant gets orphaned in the past, it would be sent to Nairobi and then eventually released into the wild in southern Kenya. So they would never have the opportunity to be reunited with their own herds on their own land. But now the sanctuary is up in northern Kenya and the community is so proud of what they've done. It's changed their relationship with all the wildlife there. They now understand how important elephants and all the wildlife are to the whole ecosystem. And it's a really complex story, but you can read more about it in the magazine because I wrote and took pictures and I'm actually now making a feature film there. And um, yeah, it just, it gives me hope because, you know, I think we're just so used to seeing bad environmental stories and how, and hear about poaching and, you know, that we're just destroying the planet. But my goal is finding these, these stories that remind us of what we can achieve and hopefully they can become a blueprint for other places as well. So I read this story and saw some of your pictures and you know, there's a few pictures with you next to an elephant. What is it like being that close to an elephant? Because it looks absolutely magical. Well, that was amazing because those elephants, I've spent so much time there when they're rescued and when they come in, that was, there's a baby elephant called Natasoit and then another one called Worgus. Worgus was covered in blood because his mother was shot right in front of him. Um, Natasoit was on death's bed. She was only a week old when she arrived and everybody thought she would die. And so um, I spent so much time just loving on them because they can also die of loneliness and they're incredibly sentient creatures and rely on their family. They're just like humans. They need love and they need their family structures. So I um, had been there when both of those elephants um, were, you know, really in bad shape. And I came back a couple months later and there's this little video you see, you might see on my Instagram page where Natasoit, she smelled me from like a mile away mm-hmm. and came tearing out of the forest, screaming and came running up to me and started pressing her trunk all over me, all over my face, untying my shoelaces and just making lots of, um, trumpets and, you know, trumpeting. And she was so happy to see me because she remembered me from that time when she had just arrived. And it was so touching that this um, 
that these baby elephants remember me. And it just, you know, just like people, it took me a long time to earn their trust as well. And my goodness, the elephants have taught me so much about actually just relating to people too, with that same sensitivity. Do you want to share some of the things that you've learned from the elephants? I mean, it's beautiful, this story. Um, yeah, even when people have walls up, like Shaba wanted to kill me to understand that, um, everybody's vulnerable and we have different ways of expressing, you know, sometimes we put walls up. And so just to try to be more gentle and kind, even to the people that are tougher to you, you know, and to just always keep an open heart. And it's hard sometimes because people will take advantage of you and, or hurt you just like elephants. (laughs) But end of the day if you can break through those walls it's so beautiful i'm curious to also ask you about you know you've seen humanity at its worst animals at their best and worst you've had a really unique lens on life yeah especially with the environment yeah (laughs) I'm, i'm sort of in awe amy it's incredible and i know now why people say you're incredible and interviewing you is going to be a remarkable time. So, you know, what have you learned about the environment that's sort of startled you, you most and maybe, maybe advice on helping protect it? Oh my goodness. My neighbor just gave me this little quote that I love. She says it's, it was by somebody called Lao Tzu. It says, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. We will understand only what we are taught. And I think that's it. We have to teach that, um, you know, that understanding. And I think that love comes naturally. So, you know, we have to treat our environment and the world we live in. I mean, ultimately, we're not, you know, Conservation International has this great campaign called Nature is Speaking. And um, it's like we're not saving the world. We're actually saving ourselves because we need nature to survive. Nature doesn't need us. And I kind of love that. It's so true. Um, And sort of just understanding that oneness that we're all totally connected on this intricate planet, whether we understand it or not, it's true. And I have another little anecdote about that. Like the, the moment I realized that was one of the first stories I ever worked on. I lived in Guinea-Bissau for about a half a year in this really remote village and learned Pular. Nobody spoke English, but the kids on my last night were asking me in Pular all these questions about my return home to America. Amy, do you have cashews in America? Amy, do you have mangoes? And then this boy, Alio, looked up at the sea of stars and there's this big, beautiful full moon. And he asked me, do you have a moon in America? And I swear, I think about him every time I see a full moon. And that was the moment like, I realized, yes, we are connected. And yes, Alio, we share the same moon. I'm a little speechless. This is great. So thank you for sharing all <laughs> these gems of wisdom. You, you travel a ton and you've just seen the most beautiful, crazy parts of the world. 
um, we're, we're now at the part where we call it the quick and dirty round. So I wanted to ask you just some quick questions, advice for listeners. You know, what, what sort of things, key pieces of gear do you take when you travel? Okay, so I travel really lightly, actually. I mean, I don't think you need a lot of gear. I think the more gear you bring, you end up getting overwhelmed and you often miss the moments. So bring what is most comfortable to you. I mean, I literally will just work with one camera and one lens. I'll usually bring backup gear that I'll just keep on the side. But, you know, less can be more. Um, And it's also less intimidating uh, to, to the people you're photographing, um, and, and maybe to yourself too. So just know what you're carrying with you. But, um, you know, yeah, that's about it (laughs) for gear. As far as like behaviors when you travel, I mean, you've navigated, you know, being an American, especially in some of these more rural parts of the world, anything to keep in mind manners we can adopt to just make our experience and our ability to connect with a culture more rich. Yeah. And it also even ties in with your last question about gear. You know, it's not about the camera and the lens. It's about you. Um, the latest and great, greatest gadgets don't matter. Empathy is all you need. Like that is the most important tool you need to have, frankly, as a human being, but as a photographer, definitely. Um, I'd say, listen more, you know, give, bring back photos, um, it's so easy these days to, you know, either email and if they don't have email, you can have them printed and mailed back. But um, always just, you know, just, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, it's pretty simple. Empathy. I love that. What were you like as a kid? I'm, I'm really curious. And if you could go back and tell your 15 year old self one piece of advice, what would you tell her? And this is a question we ask all guests. To be brave and kind and not to be afraid to be vulnerable. I love that. Amy, do you give any books away? And if you do, what books do you give away most often? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, I give different books all the time. Um, Right now I'm reading the, you know, the moth has, it's this radio program and they have a book called all these wonders, which are their stories about facing the unknown. Mm. So I'm reading that, which it's, it's pretty wonderful. I'm also reading, um, a wonderful book by a friend, Robin Reed, and it's called Savannahs of Our Birth, but that's really related to my work in East Africa and the communities there. And then I'm also reading The Last Unicorn. Um, um, it's a search for one of the earth's rarest creatures. And yeah, I, I mean, I have a pretty diverse, and then I love Mary Oliver and, um, you know, occasionally give those books. I don't know. I just, I definitely have a very eclectic group of um, books that are always on my, like a mix of workbooks, like science books for whatever story I'm working on, and then just more um, eclectic stuff. But I need to have more fiction in my life, I've decided. <laughs> I think that's my problem too. But I mean, you're a journalist, so you're attracted to nonfiction. I get it. Exactly. I definitely, for 2018, more fiction. So if any of your viewers have some suggestions, email me with some good fiction, please. Okay, listeners, email us some good fiction books. <laughs> if you could throw any party, you know, who's coming, where is it, 
What's the music? Oh my gosh, What's that's the food? a hard question. Could I invite my little herd of elephants from yes, Kenya? Yes, of course. <laughs> I'd probably hang out with them in the mountains of North Kenya or um, I don't know. I mean, just I'm actually a really, yeah, I'm not really a um, party girl. I like kind of hiking and being in nature a lot. So another favorite place of mine is Bhutan or frankly, right now in Montana. It's so magical. We're covered in snow and it's beautiful. Mm. Tell me a little bit about why Montana you've chosen to live. I mean, you've been everywhere around the world. What is wonderful about Montana? Uh, oh my gosh, Montana. Every Californian should go move there, right? <laughs> Just teasing. No, I mean, I know. I, oh, it's hard. Like, it's really isolating sometimes. Oh. Like, I definitely come back and feel lonely because I, you know, I am a, I just am out in this big, beautiful landscape. But the thing that draws me here is just like, I feel so connected to something else other than myself. (laughs) And it's such a cool feeling being out here and having big predators like in your backyard. How cool is that? Like I have big bears (laughs) and uh, I have to think about that when I go out on hikes, which is kind of awesome. That is awesome and terrifying. Amy, you sound like a very brave woman. I'm curious, you know, I interview a lot of adventurers and, and we, they go off and they do these giant quests or adventures and then they come home and, you know, there's a little bit of a low. It's highs and lows. How do you, do you do anything like meditation or anything to sort of navigate the potential? And I'm, I'm not saying there is, but even with my life, there's a lot of highs and lows. Like nobody talks about the hard parts, but oh my God, it's so hard. Like we, you know, it's, you, it does, I said it, you, it sounds so romantic and it is, it really is. But, you know, there's downsides and, and frankly, like, I mean, I just, um, you know, it takes a real toll on the relationships of people closest to you. So, um, you know, I've had to struggle with that and, um, I rely on my good friends and I recently just started Bikram yoga. Nice. Sweaty yoga. It is amazing. (laughs) I never knew how amazing that was. So that, and just, you know, just try to get out, um, outside because that always helps. I think, you know, I met this woman on the beach, Christine Fowler, who runs national geographic, gallery in La Jolla. And she said, Oh, you're interviewing Amy Vitale. That girl is so amazing that she donates the proceeds of the picture she sells. She sells to, to charities. So is that, how does that work, Amy? I'm so impressed. And what charities do you give to? Oh yeah, always. So all my print sales go to charities. I'm so excited. I actually just over Christmas, thank you to all the people that bought prints. We raised $40,000 for the elephant sanctuary in just three weeks. So that was so exciting and beautiful. But um, yes, I donate um, back to the communities that give me the gift of working in them. So, um, you know, I, I, I donate to the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, um, and then a few like Lewa Wildlife Conservancy and Northern Rangelands Trust. So there's a few that you can actually go to my website and learn more about. But um, yeah, it's just a one way I can um, uh, do my part in giving back to what's been given to all of us. If you could 
fly one of those eco-friendly planes across the sky and it could read a message to the world. What's your message right now? Mm, Okay, so right now, it's about not becoming discouraged. Um, And instead, you know, just gathering strength from all the beauty and love that is everywhere. The goodness is real and it's out there and seeking that. That is awesome. Lamy, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your wild ideas with us on the show. I really appreciate it. Wow. Amy, thank you so much for sharing so generously and openly with us. I really appreciate it. When we were done with this interview, we started talking about bucket list items and Amy said she'd like to fly a plane and go surfing. So I'm hoping we can help her with the surfing part of this. Something we didn't get into, but you guys should all be aware of. Amy's done a ton of work returning critically endangered captive born species like the giant pandas back to the wild. She just released her first book about her work with the pandas called Panda Love, The Secret Lives of Pandas, and it's available for pre-order. It comes out June. I imagine there's going to be all sorts of beautiful, fluffy panda pictures all over this book, so we'll have to get it. I'll have links on where to find some of these beautiful photos Amy takes, as well as stories about her in the show notes of this episode. You can find them if you go to wildideasworthliving.com. Click on the episode, press play, or read more, and the show notes will be right there. Thank you again for listening to this show and all of your support. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. You can also write a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream this show. Remember, wherever you're listening, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Right now, I'm in Denver at the Outdoor Retailer Show. If you're there, come say hi. We have some awesome guests coming up. We have Myrna Valerio, the Myrnavator, an ultra marathon runner and the founder of Fat Girl Running. She is epic. We have the artist Andy Davis. We have the CEO of Burton, Donna Carpenter, and so many more awesome guests. Stay tuned. We'll see you next week. <laughs>